Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you are joining me on this Monday broadcast. Brand new week, brand new opportunity. And so today and tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about hope in an all-powerful God. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9 today and tomorrow, but I want to begin with a really, really bad dad joke, okay? What do you call a parade of rabbits hopping backwards? A parade of rabbits hopping backwards. Why, a receding hairline, of course. Well, that is really bad, and I know dad jokes are really bad, but you know, one of the reasons I do bad dad jokes is because I want to lower your expectations for the message, okay? But listen, we're talking about hope. Romans chapter 9 is a chapter that talks about the sovereignty of God. It's one of these difficult chapters in the Bible, and people have gone all over the different angles on this chapter, but I want to share with you four reasons why you can have hope in the fact that God is all-powerful. We're actually going to spell out the word hope today and tomorrow in the broadcast. So let me give you the first one. God is all-powerful, but in spite of being all-powerful, He still loves all of humanity. That's the letter H. God loves all of humanity. He is filled with mercy. Let's read Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 22. Paul is writing and he says, Now one of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Now, Paul's asking a pertinent question. He is anticipating something's going to happen. He says, now listen, if I talk about God being all-powerful and nobody can resist him, uh, if God draws you into a relationship with him, uh, you can't resist that. If that's the case, then how can God blame me if I don't receive him? Because he's all-powerful. Nobody can resist his will. But look what Paul says. Paul says that God loves all humanity, but verse 20, he makes a reminder. He says, who are you, a mere human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right, out of the same lump of clay, to make some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for his destruction? Paul is reminding us here of something very important. Listen, it is the one who designed something that designs it for a purpose and designs it with something in mind. And so it's kind of like, now this is a weird illustration, right? It's kind of like me jumping in my car that has been designed to be controlled by the driver and my car saying back to me, I say, well, I don't want to go where you want to go. I'm sorry, car. Uh, You don't have any say in the matter. I'm going to put you in gear. I'm going to turn the wheel and you're going to go where I want you to go. I am the one that is in control of the car, not the car itself. And so God does the same thing to us. He designs us with a purpose. He loves us, and he wants us to find what that purpose is, and he doesn't want us to get hung up in the wrong way of thinking. So here we look at a couple of ways in which God shows his love for us, and I'm going to give you three of them under this point, okay? Here's the first one. When you think about God loving all of humanity, he is patient with our feeble resistance. Look at verse 20 again. Why does God blame us? For who is able to resist his will? 
Now, I think you must have the mental ability to know God, and if you don't have a brain, it wouldn't make any sense to say that you're responsible to Him. An infant, for example. An infant would seem not to fit this criteria in being able to consciously resist God. Now, let me step back just a moment as we look at this. God loves humanity, and we are trying to have a feeble resistance to Him by blaming him for the fact that we have not received him. Maybe the best way to look at this is kind of how Jonathan Edwards dealt with this matter, okay? Jonathan Edwards, and and he's not the only one, but others have pointed out that is a kind of inability that excuses us, okay? There's two kinds of inability that we have. One is what would be called a natural inability, and the other is a moral inability. So when we look at natural inability, if I'm a quadriplegic, for example, and I'm lying on the floor, I cannot get up. It's not that I don't want to get up. It's just that I physically cannot get up. I have a natural inability to get up. Uh, I wish I could get up, but it's against my ability to do it. I naturally can't do it. I need somebody to help me. Now, I want you to know that God will never hold our natural inabilities against us. For example, this matter of sin. We think about sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin is something that we do. It is something that we are by nature doing because we were born into sin. That is something that has to be conquered supernaturally. We cannot defeat sin in and of ourselves. It's an ongoing battle that we're going to have the rest of our lives. So, when we resist God, he's not holding the natural inability against us. He is actually holding moral inability against us. Now, let's take the same illustration of a person on the floor, but instead of an adult who is a quadriplegic, let's think about a two-year-old lying on the floor, and mom says, okay, get up. I want you to get up. This little two-year-old stops his feet and says, no, I'm not going to get up. It's an inability to get up, not because he can't get up, but because he has the moral inability to get up. He doesn't want to get up. Natural inability means that you can't do what you most deeply want to do. If that happens, you're not responsible to it. For example, the quadriplegic lying on the floor is not responsible to get up because he can't get up. But if you're lying on the floor because you love lying on the floor so much, you love it so much that you can't even sit up or you won't stand up, then you are responsible. In other words, there's a real can't, and there's a moral can't that leaves you still responsible. Disliking something so much that we can't do it leaves us responsible. You see, when the Bible says we can't come to Christ, it refers to that. We can't submit to Christ. We can't receive Him as our treasure, not because we are chained up physically, but because we are morally bankrupt. We're dark. We're rebellious. We love our darkness rather than we love the light, so that we can't come to that light. So we need God's precious and necessary grace to overcome our blindness and to soften our hearts so that we can see Jesus for who He is. So the first thing that we know that God loves us is because He is very patient with our feeble resistance. Even when we ask questions like, why don't I blame God? Why does God blame me for not being able to receive salvation? 
here's a second point that drives home the fact that God loves us, right? He's very compassionate about our faulty arguments. Now, listen to verse number 20, Romans chapter 9. But who are you, Paul says, a mere human being to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who has formed it, why'd you make me like this? Now, I want you to know, as we look at this argument, the faulty argument, talking back to God, there's levels of intellect. And maybe the best way to understand this is by using the illustration of my dog, Gilbert. Now, Gilbert's a beautiful dog. He's a golden retriever, and he's man's best friend, right? And so many people say, well, dogs are great because dogs spelled backwards as God, and your dog is like God. Your dog loves you unconditionally. And uh, I know I got mad at my dog the other day because uh, he he had an accident and and went to the bathroom in the house. Oh, I was so ticked off, right? And so I got after my dog. But you know, five minutes later, he wanted me to be his friend. Five minutes later, he came back to me like nothing happened. Unconditional love. But you know, Gilbert will never sit down with me and have a conversation about the meaning of life. Uh, He'll never sit down with me and says, hey, have you ever thought about uh, the purpose that God has for your life? He will never do that because the only thing he thinks about is the nasty now and now. He's not worried about the future. He's not worried about the past. All he's concerning himself with is what's happening in the future. There is a gap between his intellect and my intellect. And it's a pretty significant gap if you want to be honest about it. Now, when you think about the gap between our intelligence and God's intelligence, there is an even greater gap, right? There's certain things about God that we will never know. So God is very patient and very compassionate about our arguments. When we say things like, who can blame me? God for me, and I, I, can't, I can't resist this. And we have all these faulty arguments. Paul here reminds us of something very important. Paul takes us back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Now, not only is there a big, big gap between our intelligence and God's intelligence, but there are some things that we do that even hinder our understanding of truth, and it's how we live our lives. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, and I'll make my point hopefully a little bit clearer, okay? Paul says, going back to Romans 1, 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so we actually suppress the truth by living an unrighteous life. He continues on by saying, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So everybody knows God. Everybody has a certain understanding of God. It is very limited, and it actually gets suppressed because we're living in an unrighteous lifestyle. And so Paul continues by saying, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Wow, so much theology hangs from these very words when Paul says that they are without excuse. And so they are responsible for suppressing the truth. The Bible addresses accountability. There is something before that he does to reveal himself. And the way God reveals himself 
is through two words that begin with the letter C. One is conscience. Our conscience tells us that certain things are right, certain things are wrong. Now, where did that come from? That conscience was given to us by God Himself. When He created us in His image, He created us with the mindset that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. However, our conscience, the Bible says, can become seared. When we come to the point where we actually believe something is wrong that is actually right, but we weren't born that way. We were born with a conscience that had a clear understanding of what is right and what is wrong, but we developed an appetite for doing what is wrong. And as a result of doing what is wrong for so long, our minds began to change. So, not only do we have a conscience, but God also gave us creation. Oh, I was enjoying God's beautiful creation yesterday as I was just walking around. And what a beautiful day it was yesterday. And an opportunity to enjoy the beautiful sunshine, nice warm spring temperatures. And what a joy it was to have these beautiful weather. And it's amazing, God's beautiful creation. God's creation has got his fingerprints all over it. That's how we know there is a God. Because we can't duplicate the beauty and the majesty and the power of creation. So Paul says, since they have known God, since God has revealed himself to them, they are without excuse. Now, if you don't have the knowledge, evidently you'd have an excuse. Because they know about God, Paul says they're without excuse. And we don't worship him. So we've learned so far that God loves all of humanity. And he's very patient with feeble resistance, and he's very compassionate about our faulty arguments. But there's a third thing that we see about God loving us, and we discover that God designed us to fulfill his purpose. And not only is the emphasis on his purposes, not our purposes. Romans 9.21, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery for special purposes, and some for common use. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? When I was preaching this message in my church, I had a $100 bill. And I took the $100 bill and I handed it to one of the guys in our church. He just had to be sitting near the front, and I gave him the $100 bill. And I said, after I gave this person a $100 bill, I says, now, the rest of you may have this desire to have this $100 bill. And I said, somebody in this room may be thinking, well, that's not fair that he got a $100 bill. Why doesn't the pastor give everybody a $100 bill? That doesn't seem right. But really, that would be a faulty reasoning, right? Because that is my $100 bill. I had earned it or somehow I had obtained it. It was my possession. And because it belonged to me, I had the right to do with it as I wanted. Now, I could have gone to the bank and got 10 $10 bills and given 10 people $10 bills, but I chose to take the $100 bill and give it to one person. That is my prerogative. That is my $100 bill. Now, really, nobody could really have an argument against that because in my mind, the purpose of that $100 bill was to be given to this man. This man didn't earn it. He probably didn't deserve it. 
I didn't do anything to obtain it. All he had to do was receive it. It was my purpose to give it to him. You know, the new birth miracle is the same way. God chooses us. When God overcomes our blindness, we are born again in the new birth. Now, Jesus talks about this mystery, right? It says that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, you didn't make the new birth happen. The Holy Spirit convicted you, the Holy Spirit draws you, and then all of a sudden you're in this relationship with God, and you're able to fulfill God's purposes in your life. You see, Christ looks beautiful, heaven looks bright, and hell is terrible. The way of salvation looks glorious, and you believe. But look what Jesus said, John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, we need Jesus to overcome the bondage to sin we have been living in our lives. This is what the new birth is all about. Listen, when God said, let there be light, there was light. When God said to us, let there be light, we saw Christ for the first time in a compelling way. We were blind, but God said, let the light shine out of the darkness, and it shone into our hearts. Now, this is not me talking about this. This is Christ himself. And look what Paul says as he weighs on this matter as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, let light shine out of the darkness. He has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, I love that verse. In our new birth, when God said, let there be light, we saw Christ for the first time in a compelling way. When we think about seeing Christ in a compelling way, maybe next time we can turn out what it is like to live a life filled with freedom. But the point here is this. We are responsible. And yes, we are in bondage. But our bondage is a moral bondage, not a physical bondage. God loves us so much that he gives us a way to escape that bondage through Jesus Christ. So I want you to know there's a lot of hope in the sovereignty of God because God loves all of humanity. Here's the second point. Letter O, because God is all sovereign, he exercises his options, his choices. You know, we love thinking about choices, right? My body, my choice, right? The power of a choice. If we have a choice about God, don't you think that he has a choice about us? I mean, God created us and he gave us a choice. If he says, okay, you can make a choice about me, isn't it right to reason that he can make a choice about us? I mean, you think about our choices. Our choices are limited. I mean, there's only so many choices that we can make. God's choices are unlimited, except in one area. The only area that God restricts his choices when it comes to the matter of his character. Because God is God, he is holy. Because God is God, he is love. And so God cannot be unloving, because to be unloving would not be a characteristic of who he is. It would go against his nature. So God only limits his choices by his character. Well, let me get a little deeper in this, okay? As we look at this chapter, we discover Paul says that 
Jacob was loved, Esau was hated. Now, Paul is actually quoting what Malachi said, and let's turn into that passage of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and I left his inheritance in the desert jackals. Well, Edom may say, now Edom would be the descendants of Esau. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. So Edomites are pointing out just the nature of a heart that is a heart of a rebel. God says, you're not going to be able to to have a country there. It's going to lie in wasteland. But the Edomite says, well, we've been crushed, but we're going to rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. Well, you may rebuild, but I'll demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So here we have an interesting scenario. We see salvation on one hand is God choosing us. We see salvation on the other hand as whosoever will. Now, now which one is it? You know, there's a lot of whosoever wills in the Bible. But Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Well, let's look at the apostles as an example. Remember when Jesus went out and he called the apostles and he says, hey, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus said, hey, you make a choice. Well, Peter, for example, says, yep, I'm going with you, Lord. I'm going to get uh, abandoned the fishing business, and now I'm going to become fishers of men. I'm going to abandon my old lifestyle. I'm going to follow you. Peter made a choice, as well as the rest of the disciples, as well as us who follow Christ. But then Jesus says to them, I chose you. You didn't choose me. Well, which one was it? It was both. Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 10, verses 10 to 13. For it is with your heart that you have believed and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So salvation is open, available to all, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. But then there appears to be a contradiction. John 15, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And he says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. And this is my command, that you love one another. Wow. Good stuff. I want you to know... God's mercy, it's available to you right now, but it's not automatic. God's mercy is available to you right now, but he's not going to impose it upon you. God's mercy is available to you right now. 
And if you receive it, your life will be drastically changed. Oh, my friend, I so want you to receive this free gift of salvation. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. A simple little prayer like, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you were buried and that you rose again the third day. Lord, I'm putting my faith and trust in you. I believe. That is the simple plan of salvation, putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he forgives you of your sins. Well, listen, my time is up, but I want to invite you to come Easter Sunday. Worship with us on Easter Sunday. We have three Sunday morning services on Easter Sunday at 7 o'clock, at 8.30, at 11. And then we're going to do a wonderful Easter egg hunt right in between the second and the third service. Man, I'd love to see you Easter Sunday. Come on and worship with us. Now, if I can pray for you, shoot me a text message, okay? 252-267-2365. 252-267-2365. And I will pray for you. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast. Join me tomorrow for part two, Hope and an All-Powerful God. So glad that you joined me today. Here's my number one more time, 252-267-2365. Thank you so much for listening today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.